Good afternoon and welcome ladies and gentlemen to the LSE for this online event, Implications of the COVID-19 Crisis for Disability Policy. My name is Armina Ishkanian and I'm an Associate Professor in Social Policy and the Executive Director of the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm very pleased to welcome you to this panel today. I will introduce our panel members to you um, and then say a little bit more about this event. Our panel member, uh, members include Baroness Jane Campbell, who is an independent crossbench member of the House of Lords and a disability campaigner. She became nationally recognized in the early 1990s when she took over the leadership of the British Council of Disabled People from 1991 to 1995 during the National Campaign for Disability Anti-Discrimination Legislation. We also have Neil Crowther, who is an independent expert on equality, human rights, and social change with a particular interest in working to secure the rights of disabled people. Neil, prior to becoming a freelance consultant, was a senior director at the Equality and Human Rights Commission, and before that, head of policy at the Disability Rights Commission. Next, we have Liz Sace, who is a visiting senior fellow at the International Inequalities Institute at the LSE, where she was previously a JRF practitioner fellow. And Liz was also Chief Executive of Disability Rights UK and its legacy charity Radar from 2007 until 2017. And finally, last but not least, is Clinton Farquharson, MBE, who is a disabled person with lived experience of health and social care. He is Chair of the Think Local Act Personal Partnership Board and member of the Coalition for Collaborative Care. Clinton is also a member of the NHS Assembly, which was set up to oversee the NHS 10-year plan. He's the current chair of Quality Matters, a trustee of the Race Equality Foundation, an ambassador for Disability Rights UK, and director of Community Navigator Services, CIC. This panel event, will explore the potential implications of the coronavirus pandemic on disability policy. It will explore questions, including whether the vulnerability framing is likely to inform future policy and what the implications are for disabled people's lives, communities, and activists. This event is hosted by the LSE's International Inequalities Institute, which was established in 2015. The Institute brings together experts from across the LSE to lead cutting edge research focused on understanding why inequalities are escalating in numerous arenas across the world and to develop the critical tools to address these challenges. The Institute also houses the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program a funded fellowship that brings together activists, policymakers, 
and movement builders from around the world to explore and to challenge the root causes of inequality. This event is also part of the LSE's public events series, COVID-19, The Policy Response. COVID-19 represents an enormous challenge for the social sciences to help governments and non-governmental organizations respond to the economic and societal consequences of the pandemic. This is part of LSE's response to this challenge, and we are hosting a series of online public events that will take place over the summer term. Our next event in this series will take place on the 24th of June at 11 a.m. on peace and the pandemic. For those of you who are Twitter users, the hashtag today for today's event is hashtag LSC COVID-19. And this event is being recorded and hopefully will be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. As usual, there will be an opportunity for you to put your questions to the panel. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to myself, and I will pose as many as possible to the speakers, time permitting. If you can, it would be great if you could please let us know your name and affiliation, and we are particularly keen to hear from our students, alumni, and incoming students. If, so if you are one of those, please let us know. We will have live captioning for today's event that will appear at the bottom of your screen. You will be able to click on the closed caption settings and make the text larger if you wish. We also have BSL interpreters for this event. This is, in fact, the first time you are using live captioning and BSL interpreters. So we would be grateful if you could let us have any feedback. If you have any difficulties accessing any of our accessibility features, please do send an email to events at lsc.ac.uk and we can put that in the chat to everyone. Now, without further ado, I'm delighted to hand over to Liz Sace, who will get us started with the first presentation. Liz, over to you. Thank you very much, Amina, and it's great to be here and speaking as a, as a senior fellow at the International Inequalities Institute, visiting fellow at the International Inequalities Institute. I wanted to just start by acknowledging that there's no single experience of disabled people in this pandemic. Mark Brown, the, um, the great mental health writer, recently described the range from the fear of dying, washing through your every moment and extreme isolation, right through to a new sense of calm, a respite from the, the ordinary pressures of life. So I think we need to just acknowledge that we're all going through very different things. But also we have different collective stories of where disabled people are in this in this pandemic and in the future. And um, vulnerable groups uh, seem to be back in vogue as a kind of frame of reference and also back in the law uh, in the COVID Act. 
And there's a number of problems that have been identified. So firstly, locating vulnerability within you as something intrinsic obscures structural factors. And I think is it the inequality, poverty, crowded housing, being on the front line in tough jobs. Um, and I think there's some kind of parallels, perhaps, with the debates about Black, Asian, minority, ethnic people and why people are at higher risk of COVID. And the debate going, you know, it's not about, it's not intrinsic, it's not about me, it's about structural issues or it's structural issues play a huge part. But it's not just the intrinsic point, it's also that vulnerability suggests passivity. And um, I'm sure we'll hear more about that as the, as the session goes on. But just to contrast, I live in Tooting, where there's a group of people with learning disabilities in an organisation called Generate. They have been delivering cooked meals to other people with learning disabilities. We need to think about reciprocity, about contribution. This is not about a group of people who are sitting passive. And finally, um, there's a problem about putting a hard line around one group of people. Here are the extremely clinically vulnerable group or, you know, the, or the, 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 the just clinically vulnerable, whatever. Um, if you fall just outside that line, you may find yourself losing your online supermarket slot or indeed your chance of a safe return to work. So what do we want instead? Um, and I'm interested, first of all, in putting equality back into the debate. It's interesting that the Australian government came up with a disability plan to deal with the COVID pandemic. And it's all about equal rights to health, to healthcare, to life for disabled people. Disabled people are involved in, in the plan. Government coordinates, allocates resources, reviews progress. Um, but when we think about disability equality, sometimes we think in terms of removing barriers. So if you take the barrier, it's not in, you know, your vulnerability, so to speak, is not intrinsic, take the barriers away and you're freed from it. That could perhaps that could help address some of those structural barriers, structural inequalities. But we also want to replace this sense of passivity, this sense of sharp lines around one group of people and think about active participation and us all being interdependent. It's really important that this lockdown we've been in and even the, the slightly less lockdown situation we're going into should not lock down disabled people's participation. It's critical that we work to ensure that. And a number of people have argued recently that in a big crisis like this, it's quite it's historically often been the case that you get a big shift following the crisis. Think of World War One, World War Two, what happened to the welfare state after World War Two. And Nesta, the organisation, has um, talked about the, the so-called Overton window. That is the sort of window of what is considered to be politically possible. Uh, I think they said it turned into a greenhouse. But anyway, it's hugely expanded. So we've seen more state intervention. People are talking about an apprenticeship guarantee or uh, job creation, things that were not on the agenda before. So what might this mean for disabled people? So I'm just taking two areas, education and employment. Education, first of all, there is, it seems to me, a, a debate going on now about what is education for? So we've had radical challenges in the context of Black Lives Matter to the current curriculum. And it's important to say that this goes to the heart of what is education there just to just for purposes of getting qualifications 
or does it have a much wider purpose around fostering citizenship, helping us all understand our shared history? Uh, and this, this notion that our ways of measuring education are too narrow has been, I think, increasingly discussed. There's a, a, a wonderful moment in a film about the Eastley School that's on the website of the Alliance for Inclusive Education. And there's a disabled young boy. And he explains that his small group of kids always make sure that they all understand the latest learning because the science teacher had told them, you're not just here to help yourself, you're here to help each other as well. So that's about education being about growing up to think about interdependence, growing up to think about how we help each other. Angela Morgan did a review that was published last week in Scotland about um, children with additional learning needs. And she concluded that a focus on, if you focus only on qualifications, it devalues and demotivates large numbers of children and the staff who work with them. The Alliance for Inclusive Education says that that narrow measure segregates. UNESCO says we should be me measuring experience, quality, etc. And Angela Morgan went on to say that all teachers should hold and enact professional values of inclusion. Now, I, I was recently at an event of the Zero Project internationally, and they note that countries from India to Zanzibar have significant investment in teacher training for inclusive practice. Some of these countries are going practically straight from no education of disabled children straight through to inclusive, fully inclusive education. Some of them are deconstructing separate education that perhaps was imported to them by other countries. But anyway, um, is the time right for a shift in our education measurements, our education system to something that's about inclusion for everybody? And we know that that real contact day to day reduces othering, it reduces prejudice, creates more of a shared experience. That's education. Employment. So think tank after think tank are looking at the future of work. Backdrop, the which sectors and jobs will be at risk because of COVID, which because of a recession, which because of long term trends about automation, robotics, etc. Um, inequalities may be exacerbated, big risk. But that means that the question of who gets left behind has got salience at the moment, politically and in public conversation. And we had an event last week at the RSA, Royal Society of Arts, and it was pointed out that local authorities are developing economic recovery plans right now, some explicitly saying that they want to be inclusive. At the same time, you've got employers who are feverishly looking for new ways of building in remote working, perhaps hybrid models of remote and not remote. It seems to me disabled people know a huge amount about how you do different ways of working, whether that's working in a different way, using all sorts of different technology, whether it's when. So the great work of the uh, Chronic Illness Inclusion Project, which you know looks at things like if you've got fluctuations in energy, can you work when your energy is good, even if it's the middle of the night? Different places. So disabled people could shape models with allies, parents, carers, trade unions, etc. How though how employers could put in place the right sort of models that would be inclusive for everybody. We're also seeing um, real real um, 
increased conversation about employment support. There's going to be lots of people potentially needing support to get back into work, perhaps with different skills, different sorts of support for businesses. So there's, is there an opportunity there to build in what works like individual placement and support, but also build in reciprocal models, peer support, community mentoring, kind of models that are perhaps slightly different from what we've had uh, as the main models so far. So there could be some opportunities to influence big shifts in policy. There's the disability specific policy. So, for example, we're expecting a disability strategy. Uh, there's a disability commission being led by uh, Lord Shinquin. But actually, the gains might be more in the or at least as much in the wider policy, the policies on business development, on job creation, on skills and so on, on education itself. And for that, we need targeted and mainstream approaches, which is something that I think the, the UN always stresses. And that means we cannot go it alone. We need allies. And I think that there's lots of potential allies on this agenda. Flexible work, for example, some great, great um, organisations on flexible work. So I think this is a really important moment. We know that we've seen how we depend upon each other. We can build on that. And it is not through thinking about vulnerable groups or even just about thinking about removing barriers. It's about disabled people strongly shaping policy that's based on reciprocity, participation and full inclusion for everyone. Thank you, Liz. I appreciate the comments. And let's hold the questions until the end for Q&A, if we can, everyone. Um, but go ahead and continue to send your questions via the, the function on Zoom for Q&A and also via Facebook, and we'll collect those. So um, our next speaker is Baroness Campbell. So I will um, turn to you, please. Hello, everybody. Um, I'm Jane, and this is Sharon. Sharon is going to speak my words when I start running out of air. But don't worry, I will catch my breath again and be back towards the end. Anyway, as I was saying, I'm Jane, and I belong to a group called The Vulnerables. Sadly, we're not a new pop group about to make our millions, but we are very popular at the moment. Um, you will hear about us every day on the radio, the TV, and wall-to-wall social media. The old Methodist adage goes, sticks and stones may break our bones, but words can never hurt us. So, why does this very popular term, vulnerable people, make me, and many others like me, uneasy, exasperated, and yes, wounded? Partly, it's that the synonym is not so attractive. It conjures up, as Liz said, weakness, victimhood, and a cry for others to take responsibility for us. But this isn't the whole reason. It's also because this term is chosen in favour of other words. Human rights, equality, 
and service entitlements for those who need them. The term is used to help define the relationship between the governed and the governing. Easy descriptors like the vulnerable can take this relationship backwards, not forwards. Disabled people, young and old, do not want to be typecast as the vulnerable in order to get our citizenship rights like daily help or reasonable adjustments in our lives. We want services relevant to our needs and access to the same environment as everyone else. Don't get me wrong, we can be vulnerable at times. During this pandemic, many of us know we can't self-isolate entirely because we rely on the assistance of other people. We're constantly vulnerable to whatever germs our support workers may bring into the home, despite their best efforts. It's a risk we have to take. Always. We don't have a choice. But it's worth considering that many disabled people like me are accustomed to this contagion-phobic territory. Welcome to our club, non-disabled people. The annual winter cold, for me, is invariably a dose of pneumonia. Thousands of people, disabled people, are used to a form of lockdown in a barrier-driven society. Our ingenuity and resilience in overcoming these barriers are underestimated and definitely unrecognised. And the vulnerability logo continues to go on and stick. All people are vulnerable at times, but this is a transitional state, not an absolute one. If you stay out all night in sub-zero weather, you're vulnerable to hypothermia. If a loved one dies, you're vulnerable to deep sadness. This does not define you as a chilly or sad person. So why are people who require someone to get them up out of bed or fetch them a meal immediately categorised and defined as vulnerable people? Not only throughout the pandemic, but now generally. Many of us were also given this added status of shielded. And I'll come back to that one later. So. By the end of March, our decades-old stereotype of being defenceless victims was in full swing again. Services for vulnerable adults have historically treated its recipients as passive, therefore perpetuating dependency and exclusion. And these past few months have been no different. Does this labelling approach address our occasional risky solution situations? No because we're not included or empowered and it's in any, way of our, in any way of our own solutions. During this pandemic, disabled people's top survival priorities were as follows. One, supermarkets to prioritize disabled people's delivery slots over those able to shop independently. Two, access to PPE and contingency lists of people able to help should our support staff come into contact with the virus. Three, to be assured equal access to healthcare, 
not subject to frailty scoring for intensive care. Four, accessible information like sign language interpretation on the 5pm coronavirus briefings. Deaf people are still waiting. Instead of responding to what disabled people said we needed, the vulnerable were told they were shielded, put on a list and sent guidance without the means to follow it. Many disabled people in the vulnerable or shielded category had to campaign for the basic human rights throughout the pandemic, directly because of this vulnerability conceptualisation. A static, meaningless concept, which simply serves to anonymise our humanity and human rights. Words matter. It is convenient to have a collective adjective to describe those individuals who may find themselves in a vulnerable situation, but it's also dangerous. In order for people to receive education services, we do not have to be defined as ignorant, even if in one sense we certainly are, else we would not require the provision. Although vulnerable is not used as a pejorative sense, as ignorant can be, it is still a loaded word. It should be used with greater selectivity and greater sensitivity. So, when reflecting, on the way that those in the so-called vulnerable group have been treated during the worst months of the pandemic, it certainly didn't feel like we were shielded. Far worse. We were definitely not shielded from the worst effects. With more than 13,000 older and disabled people having died from COVID-19, in care homes across England when COVID-19 legislation resulted in the Care Act easement policy and disabled people lost vital social care support when the frailty scoring was being discussed in terms of prioritising patients for ventilation and intensive care treatment based on age and disability not clinical benefits, and when GPs started ringing around asking the vulnerable if they wanted to consider a DNR on their notes, it began to feel like there was only a very short walk from being one of the vulnerables to the chilling club of the expendables. No, I'm afraid. Vulnerable people has to go into room one-on-one. Thanks. Thank you very much. There's a lot to discuss and think about in what you said, um, and we'll, we'll definitely come to the discussion later. Um, Neil Crowther is our next speaker. So over to you, Neil. I thank you for inviting me to uh, uh, talk alongside uh, Jane and Liz and Clinton this afternoon. Um, I think I'm largely going to be building on and amplifying uh, what Jane has just said, uh, such is my, my role in life. Um, but I just want to go into it in a little more detail. I'm going to be showing a few slides. So just bear with me while I um, share those now. Hopefully this will work. Okay. Um, so as I said, I'm going to pick up where Jane left off but I just want to start by making a point this is a, a personal view 
which is really that acknowledging our vulnerability is not de facto uh, a bad thing, by which I mean our collective uh, vulnerability. And there's a quote here on the screen. When we were children, we used to think that when we were grown up, we would no longer be vulnerable. But to grow up is to accept vulnerability. To be alive is to be vulnerable. So acknowledging our vulnerability is not a bad thing. Um, who hasn't felt vulnerable at some point over the past few months, whether physically because of the virus, emotionally because of what we've had to live through, financially in terms of concerns about the future? And because it's a universal human experience, sharing it is crucial to building empathy and a sense of a larger us, um, which offers a way to defeat the divisiveness of them and us that plagues too much of our politics and public lives. So, for example, if I reflect on the uh, language, tone and approach of the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, uh, and compare that to the way Donald Trump right now is being judged not by the content of his character, but in his ability to walk down a ramp or to drink a glass of water, we can see what this sort of divisive idea of vulnerability does to our politics and our public debate. But we can see where we wear our collective vulnerability, where we acknowledge it, it creates a sense of empathy and common humanity. And the other thing that's important, and Jane has already said this, but it is really crucial that we acknowledge inequalities in the risks that we face uh, and in the lives that we are then able to lead. Um, for example, children living in poverty or in a, in a deprived area are far more likely to be killed in road traffic accidents. The life expectancy of women with learning disabilities is 17 years less than the average. There are profound structural disadvantages and discrimination faced by people from black and minority ethnic communities. And a third of all lives lost to COVID-19 in the UK so far have been those of disabled people. So accepting vulnerability as part of the human condition and acknowledging unequal risks is not the problem. The problem, as Jane and Liz have already said, is categorising a group of people as the vulnerable or as our most vulnerable citizens, to use the, the language that is now commonplace. And the acid test of whether people profit from being labelled this way is, does it make us all safer and better able to lead lives we have reason to value? And my hypothesis is that it does not. And that's because I believe it masks and amplifies stereotypes, prejudice, division and inequalities that make people more at risk or which diminish people's freedom and opportunities. As Jane said, it overlooks the dynamic nature of risk, framing it all as inherent to the person's own characteristics rather than their context and their circumstances. And in doing so, it also precludes some people who are acutely at risk because of their circumstances, but who are not categorised as vulnerable. It misattributes causes, meaning solutions are missed, and it can displace accountability for action. Now, I think it's probably important here to say that the word vulnerable isn't in common use. This isn't a word that, that many of us do actually use to describe ourselves or, or others. And uh, if you, on the screen is a, a graph just taken from Google Trends, which showed uh, searches for the word vulnerable from January 2004 until today. And what you can see there is uh, that we reached a peak in the word vulnerable at the peak of the virus uh, in March, April of 2020. And now we see it fading, retreating uh, as the virus is too. Um, now, of course, this was a period when the terms clinically vulnerable and clinically extremely vulnerable entered our language to denote people who were advised to take additional precautions. Uh, and people were no doubt searching to understand who this applied to. 
but it was also a period where this specific terminology was coupled with increasing references by politicians and others to protecting the elderly and vulnerable, or to protecting the most vulnerable. And what a more detailed look at this trend shows is that it was the word vulnerable alone that drove up this peak, not the specific terminology. But while this graph suggests it's not a word that has been in common everyday use, we do know that it's a word that is strongly associated with disabled people, older people, with children with special educational needs, and those who draw upon social care. Uh, I'm part of a movement called Social Care Future, and in 2018, the Frameworks Institute did some on-the-street interviews with members of the public, asking them what came to mind when they heard the word social care and why we had a social care system. And almost all respondents spontaneously said social care existed to look after the, the vulnerable who can't look after themselves, the passivity that both Liz and Jane have referred to. And while describing people as vulnerable implies extra concern and a will to protect, it is at once othering, fostering a sense of them and us rather than a larger us. And it was notable in these on-the-street interviews that nobody talked about their own future selves or likened those requiring social care to themselves or to people that they knew. And that's perhaps not surprising, as the word is imbued with meaning that seems more likely to diminish the equal worth and status of those to whom the label is applied. On the screen uh, is this, the results of a, of a word association. These are words that commonly appear alongside uh, the word vulnerable. So we have words like endangered, deficient, disadvantaged, unprotected, orphaned, fragile, fragmented, protecting, exposed, exploited. So as others have said, um, it's a word that conveys weakness, a lack of capacity and agency of a person to look after themselves, the increased likelihood they might come in harm's way or be taken advantage of. In the context of welfare reform debates, it's been used to de demarc a group of people who can't be expected to assume the same responsibilities as other citizens. It's employed to invoke compassion and to secure special protection. And it's also used instrumentally by people, especially politicians, who wish to make their opponents appear unkind. But in doing so, it undermines status and opportunities, painting people as lacking agency or as not being in possession of any productive potential. It promotes the idea that society's primary responsibility should be to act as custodians, not to respect and promote disabled and older people's freedoms. This in turn orientates public policy and services towards a culture of liability for disabled people, in which people's freedoms are curtailed rather than supported. And this is very much the narrative that currently surrounds social care, limiting the policy focus only to keeping people alive, not to supporting people to pursue a life. And this is why the word vulnerability is closely related to the patterns of prejudice we know affect and limit the lives of certain groups, including older and disabled people. Uh, on the screen is a table uh, that maps different forms of prejudice, and it does it along a metric of warmth and competence. And in the top left corner are uh, elderly people, older people, disabled people, uh, also interestingly in their housewives. Uh, and the characteristics of prejudice towards disabled people, towards those groups, are what's called paternalistic prejudice. Um, there is warmth towards these groups, but those groups are perceived to have low competence. Um, so prejudice, though, also causes us to see others who are at risk as not vulnerable. So, for example, we know black teenage boys are most at risk of experiencing knife crime, but it's very unlikely they will ever be deemed um, to be uh, vulnerable. Um, we also know that there has been a schism in terms of disabled people. 
because those that are not deemed vulnerable enough uh, and who still receive disability benefits may become the object of contemptuous prejudice, uh, disgust, anger, resentment, because they're not deemed to be fully entitled to the social security benefits that they receive. As a result, for many disabled people seeking support to lead their lives from the state and others, this operates like the medieval ducking stool. Too much agency and potential for self-direction, and they'll be denied support. Deemed sufficiently vulnerable to be worthy of support means not having much of a life. And it's important to say that the implied warm fear does not always act as a shield against hostile acts. Low expectations underpin narratives of burden. Research for social care future found that vulnerability is a word used alongside metaphors of a growing threat and burden from our ageing population, such as a demographic time bomb or a silver tsunami. And as history has shown, the consequences of such narratives can be deadly. Today, too, the language of vulnerability and the meaning it carries has made people more vulnerable. As Jane has already said, we've seen ethical guidelines which include quality of life and social value judgments. We've heard announcements of individual deaths or the overall death toll accompanied by the qualification that the people were either elderly or had an underlying health condition, whilst most of us should just expect a mild illness. We've heard respected scientists openly wondering whether we should be counting deaths from COVID-19 of those who would die soon anyway. And we've read opinion pieces in national newspapers freely discussing whether protecting the lives of vulnerable people is too high a price to pay, uh, or those which have said that old should now have to pay for the cost of recovery for the price have been protected. And one has to wonder whether this narrative holds clues as to the terrible death toll among people who were living in care homes. The government claims to have prioritised the safety and well-being of people in care homes from the outset. Not one person living in, working in, or with a relative living in care homes agrees. Their vulnerability saw them downgraded, not earning extra protection. And there's a flip side to this too, because it's not considered a positive term. It was clear when government first began referring to everyone over the age of 70 or with a specific health condition as the elderly and vulnerable, that lots of people to whom it applied disassociated themselves. Language rooted in paternalistic benevolence, shielding the elderly and vulnerable, led initially to othering, well, they must mean someone else, distancing, I'm going to argue that they don't mean me, and rejection of the advice, I don't need protecting. This may have changed in time, but in those early crucial days, how many became avoidably ill because the term vulnerable was used to describe the at-risk group to which they belonged. So a term that is presumed to denote protected status, um, uh, in practice, others and excludes. It diminishes people's status, it obscures the causes and diverts us from the solutions, and it excuses society for failing to uphold people's human rights. Where can we go from here? Jane's already alluded to this, and it was good to see the UN Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities make this statement during the pandemic. They've really said we have to see risk as a dynamic question, not a fixed one, taking account of both intrinsic or inherent factors and the extrinsic factors and their interaction with one another. And this must be set against an expectation that everyone should enjoy their human rights on an equal basis with others. As the committee says, persons with disabilities are often wrongly perceived to be inherently vulnerable when it is the attitudinal, environmental and institutional barriers that result in situations of vulnerability. To those ends, we need to describe differences in risk as inequalities, not vulnerabilities. And moreover, in describing the risks people face, we must not add to them by using language that, 
in painting people as a problem to be fixed makes them less safe. So I'm going to finish my remarks here by sharing a tweet by a school nurse that went viral back in April, and which for me neatly sums up everything I've wanted to say. She said, I met with a year 10 boy last week for a socially distanced walk and talk. Wanted to make sure he wasn't hungry. He explained to me that he could go to school if he wanted to because he was on the valuable list. My heart swelled. I didn't correct him. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, now we turn to Clinton. Parkinson, who will be our final speaker before the Q&A. Hi, Clinton. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, Welcome. Uh, th thank you for the opportunity to, uh, uh, to uh, speak to you all today. I feel honoured to be part of... Um, I've admired many of the people on the panel, so thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to pursue uh, Neil's line of, uh, of thinking where he talks about uh, about equality, not vulnerability. I'd like to shine the, uh, the light on my exam question, but through the lens of equality and uh, intersexuality and the feminist uh, concept of which was introduced in uh, 1980 by Kimberly Cranshaw in a in recent times, intersexuality theory, the study of how different power structures interact in the lives of minorities, specifically black women, has enjoyed a resurgent uh, in popularity and academic uh, feminists like Bell Hook. Inequality that brings to the discussion about in invisibility. Equality is like a diamond it has many facets and shining a light on it helps it to reveal its complexity its value and meaning are social constructs and the assignment of value and meaning have concrete ramifications on people's lives also i'd like to touch on how the different types of discrimination interplay with our identities. And I mention this because I think identity is really important. As a black disabled man, I live in the space of uh, intersectionality, along with many others in uh, the disability policy world. We all, however, have different perspectives. We are weathering the same storm, but not on the same boat. Uh, black and ethnic minority uh, uh, ethnic communities and learning disabilities and autistic people and older people have always been barred from having their care uh, and the way uh, having pa uh, paid time off and fair wages require uh, to make a vessel strong enough to withstand the deadly gales that we're facing. But right now, so many people in Britain and beyond uh, grappling with uh, feelings of uh, anger, frustration, and deep, deep sadness and real helplessness. No matter who you are, we have a question, we, uh, we have a questions about what to do now 
how to make things better. And as we've seen, the protests we've witnessed now have uh, been unfolding over many, many years. What is the path forward to eradicate inequality, which I call multiple disadvantage that manifests itself in multiple spheres of our lives and takes many forms, including internalization, uh, inter, uh, interpersonal, institutional, and structural, including the culture. In most conversations, people think about multiple disadvantages as a problem between two or more individuals. From a systems perspective, uh, different facets of multiple disadvantage work uh, interactively to reinforce a system that uh, disadvantages outcomes. In other words, uh, interactions between individuals are shaped by the and reflected underlining and often hidden structures that shape uh, biases and, cre and create things so unlike that there's no basis comparison of outcomes even in the absence of disadvantage intentions and what I mean about that there the presence of structural oppression is evidenced by consistent differences in outcome whether you are looking at education attainment housing health social care even policing or lifespan that correlates with intersexuality of the community. Yeah, this has been a gut-wrenching punch to anybody who felt like we could be making progression in the way that we put forward life chances that empower particular fault lines in communities. Change the culture so that the culture can be accountable to the values of the community. And what, uh, and what we saw was small but measurable progression. We always knew with small measurable progression that there were always only one tragic incident from going straight back to the start line. That's, uh, that's what this pandemic has brought starkly into the light, which was built and shaky foundations and holding the weight of that individually and collectively is just too much it's just too heavy a load for a person or people or a generation to hold up so i don't know all the uh, all the ways we're going to get there i do uh, i know it's going to take everything and it's going to need the kind of systematic change and the ways in which some something works that we tradi uh, traditionally offer. It's also going to need a quantum change in the way that we think about equality. But mostly, this is, isn't just a social care problem. This is the unpaid debt that is owed to all uh, uh, BAMI and disabled people communities in Britain. This bill has come due, for a better word, and we need to uh, start getting uh, account our accounting together so we are not just paying off the interest of the inequality.
it's an opportunity that I'm take, um, taking now to just tell you about how you can get involved and all of us, how we can take action. Because right now, strategic action is critical for all of us to do the work to change the rules that too often keep the, uh, the system in place and that holds us back. Make no mistake, the system is not broken. It's operating exactly the way it was designed. At every single level, the system is not about providing equality, but about ensuring certain people and certain communities are protected while other communities are uh, experiencing multiple disadvantage. How do we channel presence into power? Far too often, we mistake presence and visibility for the power and presence, retweets the stories of uh, many movements and people, feelings and passion about change could sometimes make us feel like change won't come. But power is actually the ability to change the rules. And right now, every day, people are taking action. And what um, we're trying to channel is that energy into a couple of things for me. First, the whole set of demands at central uh, government level and at the local level. As many of my friends and colleagues on this panel have described, inequality operates on many different levels. And what we need to recognize is that while there are lots of things that can happen at central government level and local, all around the country, there are decisions that are being made in communities around how our life chances is executed, where committees need to hold deep, deeper level of accountability at the local level. We need new laws. At the end of the day, we have an opportunity in this moment to make change, I feel. Touch points are the, uh, those moments where we have an opportunity to make huge leaps forward or the real, real threat of falling backwards. In our hands is the ability to do some incredible things about undoing some of the many of the injustices that have stood in the way of progression for far too long. But everyday people must get together. We must channel that presence into power and we must build the type of power that changes the rules around, you know, sexism, uh, uh, disabledism, racism, you know, institutional discrimination, just to mention a few in so many ways. It is like water pouring over a floor with holes in it. In every single way, it will find those holes. And so for us, we cannot simply accept charitable solutions to structural problems. But we actually have to work for structural change. And I um, would like to finish uh, uh, um, quoting uh, Ernest Hemingway from Who the Bell Tolls. The world is a fine place and it's worth fighting for. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Clinton.
Very powerful words. I think you give us a lot to think about, about how change happens. At, and, you know, we are at this critical juncture um, in many ways. And the question is, you know, how will the system respond and how can change happen? And I've been looking at the questions that have been coming in and a lot of people are posing that kind of question about how can we make changes to what we perceive are the problems within the system? Because as you said, the system isn't broken. The system is operating as it was meant to operate. You know, this is the problem. So um, I'm going to, to go to the questions because I think we've got very interesting discussions emerging and I'm looking at the votes that are happening. So please um, continue voting for the questions um, that you like, but I will um, <clears throat> take one from Nero Griffiths, who's a teaching and research fellow in disability studies at the University of Leeds. Miro writes, the United Nations Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, as well as international disabled people's organizations, have highlighted a number of concerns and areas, such as health system, education system, labor market, that need to be accounted for in national and local policymaking. So, where are the current windows of opportunity for disabled people and their organizations to engage and shape current and future disability policy. So any of the speakers can take that and multiple speakers can respond. I'll start if you like, Amina. Um, so I think um, the first thing is that disabled people's organizations are really important in this. Uh, and um, I noticed on the on the Q&A or the chat, um, somebody raised the point that at local level, there's quite a lot of sort of people coming together and being mobilised by, partly by the crisis. Um, and also there may be sort of shared issues coming up. So, I mean, Clinton, you spoke really um, powerfully about living intersectionality, but people making connections with people who are mobilising on perhaps distinct issues, but intersecting issues, you know, about housing, about going back into frontline work if you don't feel it's safe, all sorts of things like that. Um, I suppose, so I think uh, I think the first thing is that sort of mobilisation and people coming together as much as possible. Um, but I think the other thing is that um, I mentioned one or two windows we are expecting a disability strategy but i also think chunking up the issues is not a bad idea there's been quite a lot of focus on health and health services um, during the crisis but i think as time goes on issues about money and employment are going to become absolutely crucial so you know who's going to lose their jobs first and i'm worried about people for example people for whom um people for whom it still doesn't feel safe or isn't safe to go on public transport in the rush hour or to, uh, you know, and whose employers are not making adjustments. Actually, it's hugely important that disabled people and allies are influencing policy on employment um, and on, you know, things like that employers need to be uh, really looking proactively and with an equality lens they do need to lose people. Who's losing out? 
So I think I think you know that's just an employment example. But you say the, Neil talked about social care. I think we need we need people to be working in those different areas to move forwards not just on a disability strategy, but on an employment strategy, an education strategy, a transport strategy. And of course, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I do wish more disabled people would get engaged in politics. Um, I did a long apprenticeship um, to get where I am today. I cut my teeth um, on politics way back in my 20s when I was very active in the disabled people's movement. Um, and there is no better um, apprenticeship ground than getting involved in your disability organisation. Um, there is always power in numbers. And I remember back in those days when we were fighting for anti-discrimination legislation, it was the local and the national working in combination and lobbying MPs getting involved in, in politics, um, but actually policy began to change. And it wasn't just changing at a legislative level, but the language was changing. And the more that disabled grassroots disabled people engaged at that national level with their MPs, with their local councillors, with their um, with the, the, the people that were fervently politically involved, that that dynamic really took off. Um, and, you know, we've had all women shortlists for um, the membership in some of the Labour Party constituencies. Uh, why not have an all disabled people shortlist? Um, somebody on the chat said, you know, what do you think of? Um, discrimination favorably. Well, I don't talk, talk about pro-discrimination. I just talk about positive action, leveling up the playing field. And there are very few disabled people in politics. It took me 10 long years to feel comfortable within the environment of the House of Lords. It took me two years to bring a PA into the chamber because to help me give my speeches, because it wasn't allowed to have a commoner across the bar. Um, there was democracy stopped. I didn't have my entitlements to participate equally. And it took me two years to get that changed. So things do change. And I do think politics is a big way to make some of those changes that we wouldn't think of every day. Just a few reflections, I mean, um, it's, it's linked to what, what Liz said, um, but often we talk about intersectionality, we talk about people's identities. Um, there's some really interesting work that's been done uh, by an organisation called PERC, called No Causes in Ireland. Um, I think this is something we have to think about a lot, um, that we don't often help ourselves by fragmenting our efforts to achieve social change. And actually there's a lot more common ground between apparently different fields of change than we realise when we look at it from the point of view of values rather than the issues themselves. Um, so, for example, uh, if we're trying to kind of 
shape society in the round as we move beyond this and the kind of values that are dominant in society. Uh, we may actually find real common ground uh, with those that are trying to achieve shifts around climate change or, or, or a whole other range of issues. Um, so, for example, there's very much this conceit that, that sits with this notion of vulnerability about caring for people, caring for other people who can't look after themselves. Actually, something we saw really strongly through the pandemic was a value of people as, as caring about one another, uh, the, the reciprocity that Liz talked about earlier. And that idea about caring about one another and the planet and our well-being is a really powerful value to invoke, but something we can do in common with other movements if we think much more kind of laterally about that. Um, I think the other opportunity is that, you know, millions for the first time ever or for the first time they might ever openly acknowledge it have been reliant almost completely on state support for their finances. Um, you know, there's an opportunity to really reinforce the idea of social security and move away from this idea of welfare, again, into this idea of a larger us rather than them and us, to try and attack some of the debates that have really bedeviled the debate around welfare reform for the last 20 years with huge negative impacts on, on disabled people. How can we move beyond that into the idea of social security as a common good? Um, social care um, is enjoying a very high profile at the minute but the story of social care has been again reduced to the idea of looking after vulnerable people in care homes um, there's a real chance to shape that narrative to see it going in a really different direction and that's what the social care future movement i belong to is is trying to do and one of the absolute key things there and clinton's already alluded to it is taking every opportunity to make sure that it's not care home providers and large hedge fund businesses that are sat around the tables of Parliament and Whitehall debate in this, but it's those people and their families that draw on social care and support that are really shaping that future. Um, so constantly reminding people who are organising conferences or parliamentary committees that are holding hearings on the future of workforce, that they need to hear those voices is absolutely key and we can get seats around those, those tables. And then finally, linked to all of that, which I think is really, really needed in terms of disability rights, is narrative change. Um, uh, it, it's just not been done. Other fields, like Joseph Rowntree Foundation work on reframing poverty, the work we're trying to do on social care, work that's been done about climate change. The narrative around disability rights has been amazing in building a movement and consolidating its base. It's been absolutely lousy in actually influencing the wider public and reshaping the way they think. I think that narrative change has to come now, and if it did, it would very powerfully change the future course of things. Just like to uh, add a, a little uh, comment on, on that. I, uh, I agree with every other speaker about allies, but the, the common cause that we can all coalesce around, for me, is poverty. Because poverty is that intersectionality that affects, uh, you know, most of the uh, uh, minority uh, uh, groups and communities. And if we can coalesce, around that, I think we can change, uh, you know, uh, society. But also, when people talk about equality, we've ended up putting equality uh, into silos. Uh, but equality for me is about our hopes, our dreams, our wishes. So what would equality look like for me would be, equality is what love looks like in the public. That's what Equality should be, and everyone is entitled to to feel that. Thank you.
I think lots of good points there about alliances, about, you know, working through the political system to challenge. And, and I think um, there was some key points to take away from that. There's now several questions around, well, we are in a context of coming out of a decade of austerity. So there's two questions I want to ask together because they're bringing together the austerity in the state, but also about how it affects different people um, in a different way. So, um, and particularly focusing on BAME people. So the first question is from Councillor Sahir Alam, Alam, um, and he asks, with all the cuts in the public sector over the last years, how can local government support and empower disabled people, especially BAME disabled people who face multiple discrimination and disadvantage when local government has lost 60p from every one pound budget settlement. And the government has changed local government settlement by not taking deprivation and need into account of the local area. And the second question, which um, I'm going to ask a couple of questions because I know we've um, got lots of questions and not that much time. But the second question relates to the first. It comes from um, someone in the audience named Isla X. Isla writes, austerity and benefit reforms have robbed persons with disabilities of much needed funds. What policies do we need now to change this and make more funds available, especially at this time? Also, BAME people have historically been discriminated and have underlying health conditions that put them at a disadvantage or even risk, as COVID has shown. What more is going to be done to promote, protect BAME characteristics? So we've got two linked things. One is about the austerity and the cuts, and the other is about how specific groups of people within society and the intersectional intersections of identities are affected. So I will um, ask the speakers how they want to proceed. Who would like to take that question first? Clinton, you went last on the previous one. Would you like to go first this time? <laughs> uh, uh, on, on the, um, can you just say the, 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 the two questions again? I just. Yes, absolutely. So the first question is about um, the cuts to public services and what can be done? How can local government support and empower disabled people, but especially BAME disabled people who face multiple discri discrimination and disadvantage? Um, so it's about what local, what local government can do, particularly in the wake of austerity cuts over the, the past decade. Uh, like I said in, uh, um, in, uh, in, in, in my talk about um, the system isn't broken. We, uh, we're focusing on, on the wrong things. One of the things that I would like to see is a universal basic income. You know, uh, for me, that would be uh, a way of addressing poverty. On the, uh, on the other element about local accountability to BME and other uh, and disabled people, I would like to see how we, we can learn stuff from uh, 
abroad. Uh, how do we use participatory budgeting? This is where uh, uh, communities come together, you know, and uh, decide at a community level what is important to uh, to them at community. There's different mechanisms to um, which were two central uh, uh, command and control. Everything comes through either uh, central government, and then it comes down to local government. But we still, um, when I talk to individuals and communities, still feel helpless and powerless in decision making. So it's about how we bring that decision making closer to communities that they can shape their community where they live. I think um, when we're thinking about how we we get the voice of black and ethnic minority uh, people uh, empowered within society, uh, we've got to remember that we have to take our lead from the ME groups. Uh, people used to come up to me and say, well, you know, let me help empower you. And I would say, no. You can't empower me, but you can facilitate me to empower myself. And I think there's a lot of talk about what's happening to BME people, the fact that they are disproportionately, um, they were disproportionately suffered throughout the coronavirus, um, and the huge um, Black Lives Matters demonstration that have fought this into um, sharp focus over recent weeks. Um, and there is no substitute for investing in local black and minority ethnic communities to have their own voice and to empower themselves to be involved to take their place in society more effectively. And I have to say that white disability groups are just as guilty um, in terms of not being inclusive of, of their whole communities. Um, certainly when I was younger, the disability movement was largely the movement of wheelchair users. And it took us a long time to look at ourselves first and, and work to be more inclusive within our own organisations. In terms of empowering people, uh, there is no substitute for investments in local disability enterprises. When I was in my 30s and 40s, there were 130 working centres for independent living across the country. There are now barely 60, and they're all in big financial trouble. So where their funds have been cut on a local level, um, where people are not investing in these organisations anymore, but in favour of others. So I would go back to the first fact and say, invest in disabled people. Be more inclusive within your organisations. If you look around and everyone in the room is white, and a wheelchair user with one bloody disabled asset, you have got it wrong. And we have to work on our own inclusion, as well as asking others to include us. 
Liz, Neil, do you want to come on to that or should I go to the next question? Okay. Well, maybe we should get some more questions. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'll take, I'll, I'll take another question. Um, this is coming from um, Pauline Castress, um, Leonard Cheshire organization. And she, Pauline asks, what accountability mechanisms can people with disabilities support to hold governments to account? It seems easy for governments to ratify treaties and then only do the minimum so that they can tick boxes. We need to demonstrate the added value of having people with disabilities included and, and empowered. So the question is, what accountability mechanisms? Well, I think, can I, I, I think the, the, the most fundamental one of all, and it, it's sad that in a way, it's, it's, it's kind of a point that Clinton was making earlier, that we were making some real progress on this for a while, mm -hmm. but is the the involvement of of disabled people in in policy making so it 's not not accountability too it 's the kind of um, i 'm not a fan of the word co production but i can 't think of a better one right now, but that people are actively involved in the development design of of, of, of policies that these are things that are generated and co created together. I think we have to try and renew that um, i think that's that 's the kind of core challenge. Um, in terms of these various international conventions, we know the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is not directly part of our law. Very few of those international conventions are. Um, but it's also not self-executing, so it doesn't just implement it itself. There's a whole series of processes that have to be gone through. I've actually seen um, it, it be much more embraced by disabled people's organisations than it was five, ten years ago. And I think there's a lot greater understanding of that. An agenda of human rights has emerged, which wasn't there when Jane was campaigning uh, in the 90s and 2000s in the same way. There's a focus on equality and anti-discrimination. So we've seen that agenda broaden out. But we've also seen a kind of depletion in the support for some of the infrastructure that was already there, like the Equality and Human Rights Commission or the Office of Disability Issues or the involvement of disabled people in it. So I think we need to try and reclaim some ground there. But I feel ultimately the process has to be one of trying to domesticate these treaties, not just to come up with superstructures that are just there and then that are often are a bit of political theatre. They have to become part of the lifeblood of the kind of everyday conversation that people are having about disability policy or what's, what's going, going on in people's people. lives. I think one of the things we've seen with the Convention on the Rights of the Child is it's, it's very much part of the discussion of children's services at a local level. A lot of schools sign up to uh, the kind of principles of the Convention on the Rights of the Child and are guided by them. I don't think we've seen that with the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities yet. That's what I'd like to see, for it to become part of local democracy and local public services and what happens in people's immediate lives. But that won't necessarily be the idea of people using it and going to court. It's more the idea that it's offering this kind of framework for thinking and for making sense of policy moving forward. Um, I think that's probably the way to do it. So I guess what I'm saying ultimately is it really needs people to own it and use it if it's going to make a difference. Nobody else will do that. I think a uh, simple uh, um, progression or steps we can take is improving access for, for people to, to redress an arbitration of something at a local level. Uh, also, about moving accountability uh, closer to people in, uh, and communities and strengthening, like Neil said, strengthening the voice and the ability to, for people to feel their voice has been heard and then 
show some evidence of how that has helped form uh, 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 the decision making. Because the biggest uh, issue uh, uh, at a local level, there's a, a mistrust of uh, uh, public bodies, government. It's about how we create that trust again. Um, I was just thinking about um, local areas where systemic change is being tried with leadership from the community. So one example would be Black Thrive in London, where there's a historic deep mistrust of a lot of state agencies, as Trenton was just saying, particularly from the, the black population in uh, Lambeth. And so there's a community-led programme that is aiming systemically to shift the experience of people's mental health and their experience of mental health services. So the mental health services, the police, the local authority, they're all involved. So, it, And I think this is something about getting attention to inequality right into the heart of big change. What's tended to happen is that there are sort of little add-on projects that address, that try to show what can be done or something, but they never change the, the heart of the, of the system. Uh, and I think this might also kind of um, relate a bit to the Sagia's question earlier, which is, it's very tough with local authority financing but at least if organisations come together with a serious commitment to reduce inequality, you can then organisations like the local NHS organisations or the local authority, whatever, can become sort of anchor institutions and they can really think about, well, what are we doing to be good at employing black disabled people? Or what are, what are we doing in our education services or et cetera, et cetera? And some local authorities with partners are doing that. Uh, and just one other thing on measurement, national government could require more measures in particular sectors. It's something I've taken an interest in in the area of employment, for example, where large employers have to report on their gender pay gap. They don't have to report on um, how they're doing on employing, paying, promoting, supporting disabled people in their workforce. And there are things like that in different segments of policy that could be put in place nationally as well. Um. Okay, I've got a question. Liz, you just mentioned employment, so maybe I'll take those questions. There's a couple of questions here about employment and what, so these are from Michael and Natalie Pudanov. And the questions are about what government can do to support um, employment. So the question is, how do people with lived experience of disabilities input into general policies related to employment and business development? So, and do you agree that sometimes removing barriers um, does not always mean a level playing field? And how can pro-discrimination, especially in regards to employment, create opportunities for those living with disability? So I start. Um, yeah, so I mean, first of all, for public sector organisations, there is the public sector equality duty, which in principle means that that um, this is not just a kind of, you know, after the event, people can seek redress about discrimination. It's a more systemic, proactive uh, duty to pay due regard to um, equality. Uh, uh, 
I think there's a lot more that could be done by, um, first of all, by public sector organisations. I to, um, uh, but 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 the Equality and Human Rights Commission has suggested that the that those duties need to be changed and strengthened to make them have real impact in different sectors. Um, I just think that to go back to what I was saying earlier, that, that we're living in a moment where there's going to be a lot of attention on employment because we're heading for a recession. We've had people being paid furlough. We've got people um, claiming universal credit for the first time in the millions. Uh, and so I think there's going to be a lot of attention on the sort of support that people need to get back into work. Uh, on the skills people will need if some sectors have been badly hit, will they be able to move sectors? Uh, and I think that the, the, the key is to link up with other people who are working in those areas. I mean, just, just to give an example, I mentioned think tanks earlier. So it, at the RSA, Royal Society of Arts, there's a network developing of people who want an inclusive future of employment, uh, inclusive in every sense. And um, you can join that network uh, and it includes academics who provide the evidence and disabled people and older people and it's it's very embryonic but if people want to join that maybe you know and, and i'm sure there's other initiatives other ways that people can come together but with the with the idea of trying to influence mainstream developments not just disability specific policy I'm going to take a question that's received a lot of votes from the attendees. It's from Jackie Driver. And the question is, is there a view that the term vulnerable is being weaponized to distract from the COVID outcomes in the UK and allow for future plans to reduce social care responsibility further? <laughs> Do we know if the term has equally risen across other parts of the world, is there good practice where risk is identified in a social model approach, such as in New Zealand? Do you want me to repeat that? No, no, no. Um, I'll have a go at starting. I, I don't. Um, I'm not. I, I don't see it as a conspiracy theory, because <laughs> I think the the reality is that the word has been used around. Uh, uh, people who draw upon care and support or people who uh, are deemed to need to be the objects of safeguarding measures so on for a long, long time. So it's not new. It's just that it's kind of suddenly crept into a new use in this context. And of course, specifically, it was about identifying certain particular health conditions or um, characteristics where the evidence from other parts of the world said people were at more acute risk if they acquired the illness. What it's got merged with is not, not just um, whether people are at risk if they acquire the illness, but the, the possibility of acquiring the illness, if you like. Um, and then it, then it gets enmeshed in a kind of broader debate about what vulnerability is and whether it's intrinsic or extrinsic and so on and, and so forth. Um, I think we sort of outlined the risks before. I think the danger always is if we look at people's vulnerability as inherent to them, actually it allows us to excuse a whole load of things that happen to them in their lives rather than address them because we see them as 
uh, immutable, as fixed, as unchangeable. And we saw this actually in another area, which was disability hate crimes. So the Criminal Justice Act 2003 was the first bit of legislation to recognise hostility towards disabled people and to introduce criminal penalties specifically related to it. But it took about 10 years before the police and the prosecutors recognised it. Because what they nearly always did was, was assume that the reason somebody had experienced some crime of the person was because they were vulnerable, not because the person that did it to them was motivated by hostility. And I think that's a really good example of how this idea of vulnerability displaces our sense of what the causes and the solutions are. And I think the same goes for social care and, and other fields as well. If we were to see vulnerability as a more dynamic issue, then we would be able to actually address the risks. And to address Jackie's other point, if we address those risks within a framework of, of equality or, or rights, then we have a benchmark against which to work. And of course, being able to live your life safely and securely is a human right. It shouldn't be an opposition to it. It's absolutely key to being able to live freely, whether you're a woman, whether you're a, a black man in the United States of America wanting to feel that the criminal justice system is on your side. It's absolutely crucial. But I think if we had that dynamic sense of risk, then we would have something to work with. Thank you. Um, I'm not worth the time. We're nearly at the end. So, um, who, Baroness Campbell, did you want to come in? Well, I was just going to quickly say, um, I think that it anonymizes us and allows us to be done too. Um, and so the vulnerable, the sheltered, what did it actually do during the worst times in the pandemic? Well, it certainly didn't shelter us. And it certainly didn't make me feel less vulnerable because all the things that were actually required during this time were not done. PPE, uh, food, um, extra help. None of these things were applied. So it almost is a blobby term that for me is meaningless. And I remember it being used in the good old days when I used to be called a fire risk. And they used this term to prevent me to go into the cinema, to go and watch a play, to go and join a load of people in a nightclub, because I would be a fire risk. Well, what did that mean? Well, we eventually found it didn't mean anything. And with the correct adaptions, we were no more at risk than anybody else. So again, it's a very passive term. And as I said, get rid of it today. And I think we should stand up and say, actually, we don't want that word anymore. And the more disabled people that get on Twitter and Facebook and talk to their local councils and talk to the government and say, when you stop using that word, it is absolutely meaningless and it, is, it will not achieve anything, uh, then I think we might make some headway. So there's a campaign for you. As of today, we will rid ourselves of the term vulnerability. I don't like it. Thank you. I think that's a very good place to, to end, unless any of the other speakers want you know, famous last words. We've got one minute. Clinton, Liz, do you want to? I just, uh, for me, it's just about fixing, fixing the structures that harm us that's it, as far as I'm concerned. Thank you. Liz, anything from you? No. Well, ladies and gentlemen, and all the speakers, it's been a great pleasure to have this opportunity 
to listen to to you and to listen to um, to have these questions answered. Thank you very much for everyone for taking part in today's event. We're very grateful. Um, you could find the time in your busy schedule to be with us today and um, to share in this very important discussion. As mentioned, this is the first time we're using live captioning and BSL interpreters at our LSC online events. So we would be grateful if you could provide us with any feedback. And um, you can do that by sending an email to events at lsc.ac.uk. Um, and as I said, barring any technical difficulties, this will be available as a podcast in the future. And we'll share information about that on our Twitter feed. So thank you again, everyone. And have a lovely rest of your day. Goodbye. Thank you.